Open up your Bibles. Matthew chapter 21, as I've said. We've gone as far as verse 12. Oh, I know what I forgot. Middle schoolers after third service, 1230 to 1.30, all right? They're going to have pizza and they're going to have fun. So if you've got a middle schooler, bring them back at 12.30 or after third service. Father, we do thank you for being here. And Lord, um, I know there's a lot of people traveling. Uh, we are grateful that uh, things have opened up and more of a normality. Um, uh, people getting away, uh, people enjoying the summer. We live in a beautiful part of the country. And I just want to welcome those who are listening online, perhaps, that are, are somewhere else, a part of our church family. But Lord, uh, we gather here in this place because your word says, don't forsake the assembly of ourselves together, especially as you see the day approaching. So as we study your word, we want to have our ears open, our hearts soft. There's something here for us that you want to show us and teach us. May we be attentive to the things that, that we look at, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So keep in mind the last time that, that we were in Matthew here that we saw in chapter 21, it opened up with Jesus making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And we know that it would be a fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 that tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. And in his day of visitation, where he accepted public proclamation of Messiah. It would be a fulfillment of also Daniel chapter 9, as Daniel, that he's praying as the 70 years of captivity is just about over, the Babylonian captivity. Gabriel comes to him and says, Daniel, I want to speak to you about 70 weeks, and no one understand that the going forth of the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem will be seven weeks and 62 weeks or 69 weeks. And we looked at that prophecy very specifically, how Jesus fulfilled that in his triumphal entry. Now keep in mind that we are now in this section of Matthew that is dealing with the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the first day of the week. A large multitude had followed him, as we discussed last time, up from the Jordan Valley. There's a large multitude already in uh, Jerusalem that came out to meet him. It is Passover. The city is very crowded with worshipers. There is this excitement. There is this expectation. We know that another gospel writer tells us that they are expecting Jesus to usher in the kingdom. And Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and there's a great multitude waving the palm branches, crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And an interesting kind of note that I want to pass along, that if you add up all the chapters of the four Gospels that we have in the Bible, that is Matthew, uh, Mark, Luke, and John, you have a total of 89 chapters. 31 of those 89 chapters, or a little over a third of the gospel accounts, deal with the last week of Jesus' life. So I think the gospel writers, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God to write these gospels, show us a great importance that is put on the last week of Jesus' life. The triumphal entry of Jesus that we looked at last time is recorded in all four gospels. And when there is any event in the ministry of Jesus where our, all four gospel writers include it, uh, we see it four times, you know there's an importance. It's like God is saying, listen, I'm going to put it in four times. 
and the triumphal entry was one of such events, as well as the climax of Jesus' life and ministry, going to the cross and dying for our sins and rising from the dead. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem on the back of the foal of a donkey. The people are cheering. They're waving the palm branches. Jesus, we know from Luke's account, is weeping because he knew that in a few short days that he would be rejected, that the crowds would be crying out, crucify him. We have but one king, and that is Caesar. So Jesus, riding down from the Mount of Olives, he crosses the Kidron Valley into the city. He approaches the temple proper, and that's where we're going to pick up our text. Actually, Mark tells us that he goes to the temple, and he sees what's going on. He sees all things. He would leave that for the night out of Jerusalem. He comes back the next day, and that's where verse 12, Matthew picks it up, saying, Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So sometimes when we read this, this uh, account of Jesus cleansing the temple, we have a tendency to think that, well, that's very uncharacteristic of Jesus. The one that we have seen is so full of compassion. The one that stood on the hillside in Galilee and cried out, Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so to read this, sometimes we can have a, a bit of a hard time picturing Jesus doing this, or at least understanding why he would do this. I even heard a teaching a while back of someone who said, well, Jesus, he's just showing his humanity. He's really feeling the pressure of going to the cross. He he lost his temper. You know, he had a moment here, and I disagree with that. We need to have a clear understanding of what was taking place and why and, and understand why Jesus would drive out those who were the money changers and the selling of the animals. So he also gives this very strong indictment and rebuke against the religious leaders. We know from the history of Israel in the Old Testament that in Exodus chapter 12, before they left Egypt, God would institute the Passover. He said, you are to sacrifice uh, the Passover lamb. You take the, the blood and put it on the doorposts and the lentils, which, by the way, makes the form of a cross. And he would say that you're to celebrate, you are to look at Passover or to observe it every single year. But it's interesting, as they would leave at that point, go out into the wilderness, we know that the tabernacle was constructed. Uh, we know that all the furnishings and, and uh, all that spelled out to us in the book of Exodus, the book of Leviticus. Uh, the priestly ministry is then instituted, the sacrifices that were there. And we see that God would really put in place the religious life of his people. They would eventually go into the promised land. And we know that shortly after the generation after Joshua that had great victory, that they turned to, to the Canaanite gods, the days of the judges, which lasted over 400 years. And then came the reign of David and came Solomon. And Solomon built the first temple, a magnificent structure. The, the nation was united. But after Solomon, his son Rehoboam, under his reign, we know that the ten northern tribes, they split off, which is known as the house of Israel, and then the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the house of Judah. And idol worship uh, came to them once again. 
We know that the house of Israel, they were full-blown into idol worship. It went from bad to worse. They went off into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom did a little bit better. What is interesting, that as you read the historical books, you don't read about David or Solomon observing Passover, but you do read Hezekiah observed Passover, Hezekiah after Solomon, the southern kingdom, and Josiah as well observed Passover, you know, right before, he was the last of the good kings, right before those final kings came along, and of course the, the nation would go off into the Babylonian captivity. So an interesting kind of, of history that is there concerning the Passover. Now, after the 70 years of captivity, and I don't mean to bore you with all of this, but it gives us understanding what is going on. You see, Zerubbabel comes back, the civil leader, as well as Joshua, the high priest. They come back and they rebuild the temple. It was a very modest temple. And during that time, as you get closer to the days of Jesus, they begin to observe Passover once again. But there was a challenge in that because as the rubble came back, only a small remnant came back, about 50,000. Most of the people stayed back in, in Persia or were, they were off in the Babylonian captivity. And also we know that with the Assyrians taking the 10 northern tribes off into captivity, the Jews, the dispersal, they were all over Israel during the first temple period that they were there in Israel. So when Passover was observed, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah, that they could bring an animal there fairly easily, especially those of the house of Judah. They lived close by to Jerusalem. Now the Jews are dispersed all over the known world. Any city or any village that had 10 Jewish males or more, they would establish the synagogue. We've talked about that, the synagogue worship. But still, they were to come to Jerusalem in the second temple period, and they were to observe Passover, and they were to bring a lamb uh, for sacrifice for Passover. But there was challenges in that. So what happened was initially, they came up, the religious leaders, with a great idea to help those who were traveling from Asia Minor, from northern Africa, even from northern Israel. Uh, from, uh, you know, Europe, Rome, wherever they came from, travel was very expensive. Uh, sometimes there was maybe one chance that you could come to Passover if you lived long distances away from Israel. And to bring a, a, a lamb with you would be very difficult. Travel was expensive. It was dangerous. There's wild dogs that are out there that can get a hold of your lamb. You have to feed it. So it really wasn't practical for the worshipers to travel to bring a, a lamb with them for Passover. So by the time the lamb would get there, it'd be so tattered and beat up and, and maybe perhaps get hurt that it would be unacceptable for a sacrifice. So the idea was, is when these travelers get to Jerusalem, what they can do is they can purchase a pre-approved, already inspected, declared to be acceptable for sacrifice, and that's going to be a whole lot easier than trying to bring your own animal over a long distance. Also, when the pilgrims came to Jerusalem at Passover, they were to bring a, an offering for the temple, a temple offering, which the Old Testament said was a half a shekel. A half a shekel each Jewish male, uh, not over a half a shekel, not under a half a shekel. But there was another problem. There are those who would come and had Roman coinage, uh, as Rome is, is uh, ruling over the known world. And if you brought that Roman coin, coinage to the temple, 
that had an image of Caesar on it that's unacceptable. That's a blasphemy. We cannot accept that. If you came from Egypt, if you came from Ethiopia, such as the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in Acts chapter 8, he would bring coinage that would have Candace that would be on the coins, that image. So they came up with the temple coinage. So to exchange that money that you had, you can exchange it, the currency, to help them get to a half a shekel. And what was initially a couple of good ideas to help the Jews as they would come to Jerusalem for the feast, and I don't think that Jesus is particularly condemning the selling of the animals or them trying to help the pilgrims in that way. We do things here to help. You know, we have air conditioning. Aren't we thankful we have that in the day that we're in and, and today when it's hot? Our parents, you know, and before that, very few buildings had air conditioning. And many churches around the world don't have air conditioning. But we're fortunate. We have chairs. We have lights. We have sound equipment. It's all to be a blessing to help you as you come here to worship, to worship freely and to hear God's word. But back to this time, what had happened over the years leading up to the time of Jesus is that the selling of the animals and the exchange of the coinage, it became very, very corrupt. It was the priests, particularly Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, that was overseeing this process. Now, you might be thinking, who is Annas? Who is Caiaphas? And again, this helps us get an understanding why Jesus did what he did, why he gave a strong rebuke to uh, the religious leaders in, in the buying of, and selling of the animals and the exchange of money. Now, you recall, and we'll go over it, when Jesus gets arrested and he's bound up in the Garden of Gethsemane and he begins the, a series of trials that takes him and leads him to going to the cross. The very first person that he stands before is Annas. John's Gospel tells us, Annas the high priest. Then he's taken over to Caiaphas, and John's Gospel tells us that Caiaphas was the high priest in that year. He was the official high priest. Again, just a little bit of history. As you look at Leviticus, we know that the priestly ministry is described to us there. And the priests were the direct descendants of Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. So the direct descendants of Aaron were to be the priests. And then you had the office of the high priest. The high priest was the one that went behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat that was over the Ark of the Covenant to make atonement for the sins of the nation. That The day of atonement. Leviticus chapter 16, you can read about that. So at this time here, the second temple period, Annas was the patriarch of the high priestly family, but not legitimately. You see, he was one that, that as the Romans took over, they wanted to control the leadership of Israel. There was no longer a king. Um, that came to an end when the Babylonians came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., when they came back, they didn't have a king. There's no one who has sat on the throne of David. The next one is going to be Jesus. So Zedekiah was the last of the kings of Judah. There was no king, so their leader is the high priest. He's the religious leaders. So the Romans are thinking, because this is such a religious people, uh, we are going to be able to control them a lot better if we can control the high priestly office. 
They didn't care about hereditary line. They didn't care about genealogy. They didn't care about spiritual qualifications. There were some priests that were actually priests like Zacharias in Luke chapter 1 was from the priestly line ministering in the temple. But when it came to the high priestly office, the high priest, he is the leader. And they would look for somebody. They would appoint someone who would be very sympathetic towards Rome, willing to appease them and work with them. When Herod the Great ruled at the time of the birth of Jesus, what they actually did, Josephus the Jewish historian said, that they would take the high priestly garments and they would lock them up in an Antonio fortress there by the temple. And, and that's where Jesus was scourged. That's where Paul gave his testimony in Acts chapter 21 and 22. So the high priest, they would go to the Roman soldiers they would check out their priestly garments. And when he was done for the day in, in doing his priestly ministry, he would then have to check them back into the fortress. That's one of the ways that Rome would have control over the nation. And then what happened is Rome said, okay, we don't care about genealogy. We don't care who's the legitimate high priest. We don't care about their spiritual qualifications. If it's one that really cares for the people or has a heart for God. What we're going to do is we're going to select these certain families and we might as well have them bid on the high priestly office. And whoever bids the highest, that they will get that office of the high priest. So the family of Annas, which was very wealthy, paid the Romans off, won the bidding for the high priest. And Annas, he was the official high priest, as history tells us, from 6 AD, right after the birth of Jesus, till 15 AD. Then there was another high priest, and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, became the official high priest from, uh, I believe, 18 A.D. to 36 A.D. That was a long time. But he, Annas, and Caiaphas, the official high priest, were in charge of the selling of the animals and the exchange of money. And they were taken advantage of, of everyone. They were selling the animals at a very high cost. Uh, one commentator that I read said that uh, uh, one lamb that would be sold for the worshiper that was coming in was at two to three months' wage. The exchange of money was at a very high rate. And Annas and his family was making a killing. They were making millions of dollars in today's value so they could keep the high priest's office. So the Romans would come and say, it's time to change the high priest. He bought the office for five of his sons, including Caiaphas, his son-in-law, the last of, of Anna's sons that, that reigned as high priest was killed by the Jews in 66 AD when the Jewish revolt happened right before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD because he was so close to Rome. And so they would all serve. They kept the, the high priest's office. They would outbid everyone else. And Caiaphas, he is the high priest officially during this time, but everybody knows that Annas is really the power behind the high priestly office. And so that's why you have a reference of Annas being the high priest, the first one that Jesus went, as he had three, you know, religious trials that he went to, Annas first, the Sanhedrin in an illegal trial, and then the next morning they would gather once again to officially condemn him, and then took him to Pilate, for three civil trials that we will look at later on as we travel through Matthew. But Annas is the power behind a high priestly office. Caiaphas was the official high priest. Uh, 
So there's no contradiction. People say there's a contradiction. No, there's no contradiction. The Bible makes it clear, and if you know your history. So the priests were to be there to serve the people. They were represent the people to God, and they were to represent God's heart to the people. But that wasn't happening at this time. You know, the Old Testament, you read about how they had the breastplate with the 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which meant that they had the people close to their heart. And the ephod with the stones on uh, the ephod, they would bear the, you know, the burdens of the people on their shoulders. They were to minister to the people. They were to give the heart of God, and they were to be praying for the people. But instead, they're praying on the people, P-R-E-Y-I-N-G, at this time. And they are ripping off those who had made the effort to expend the energy and to come to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And Jesus is seeing all this corruption, this greed, and taking advantage of God's people. And in his righteous anger, he did not just have a moment and lost his temper and was out of control. That's what we do. That's what I do. But he saw all things, Mark chapter 11 says. He would leave for the night. He came back the next day. He drives out the money changers as he overturns the tables. He drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple. And he cries out, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, a couple things to note here quickly. You may think that all four gospels give an account of the cleansing of the temple. But there was two times that Jesus cleansed the temple. The synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this time at the end of Jesus' life in his last week. John records the cleansing of the temple that happened a couple years before this in the first year of his public ministry. He records it after the miracle, the first miracle that Jesus performed in John chapter 2 at the wedding feast at Canaan. And then as he came in and did the same thing, the religious leaders are saying, by what authority do you do these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And they're going, what do you mean destroy this temple? This is a magnificent building. It's taken six three years to remodel this temple and you say that you will raise it up in three days but of course he was talking about his body his resurrection and as we look at John chapter 2 the rebuke was a little bit different than here uh, in uh, what we have in this last week as he rebukes them once again he would say in John chapter 2 don't make my father's house a house of merchandise here as Matthew Mark and Luke in his last week it's a stronger indictment. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of thieves. He is quoting from, first of all, from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, for you note takers. And in chapter 56, verse 7, we read that even then I will bring to my holy mountains and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer. Listen. For all the nations. He would also be quoting from Jeremiah chapter 11. During a time when Jeremiah standing at the gate of the first temple before he was destroyed by the Babylonians. And Jeremiah is addressing the leaders who are saying nothing's going to happen to us. They were listening to the false, you know, religious leaders and, and prophets that were on the scene saying nothing's going to happen to Jerusalem. Uh, Jeremiah is saying, listen, you need to repent of your idol worship and your sins, or there's going to be death and devastation and destruction like you've never seen before. 
And there were false religious prophets on the scene were saying, no, we don't have to worry about it. We have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. They were trusting in the temple, but not trusting in the Lord. And the Lord would bring rebuke to them because they were not right with him. Will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Swear falsely? Burn incense to Baal? And then walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all things, these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? So as we look at these factors that we've talked about in the cleansing of the temple, what does it mean for you and for me today? As we see the selling of the animals, the exchange of money uh, done here in a place that Jesus says, this is my father's house, and you have made my father's house a den of thieves. You know what a den is, don't you? It's where a place we heard this week, uh, many of you on the news, that for the very first time in over 80 years that there is uh, wolf pups that are in a den, and they've observed them. And a den is a place where those pups are safe. They're protected. Well, there are wolves here in the temple at this time, and they're being protected by the religious leaders, ripping the people off. What does it mean for us? It's this. Whenever a church or a ministry or the house of God begins to focus on and make decisions primarily based on how can we get more money? How can we profit more? How can we get the financial numbers up and all of this? And I'm one that believes that God's money, because it is his money, should be handled very carefully and prayerfully. I believe that the church should be run decently and honorable. Uh, Lee, and in a way that pleases God. And it does take money to run a, a ministry at church. There's bills to pay. There's staff to pay. I thank you for your support. There's things to fix. We want to invest in the kingdom of God, in radio, in missions, in other ministries. We want to be able to give as much as possible. But we never want this place to be a house of merchandise. We want to run it as a, as a ministry. That is pleasing to God. We want to be good and faithful stewards of the resources that God has given to us. But I'll tell you this. If our primary focus, and there are those churches you can turn on the TV and you can see ministries that are this way. That all they care about is more and more dollars and how they can bring in more money. Rather than what Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep and tend my sheep. I've had a few people over the years, they've said, well, why don't you take attendance and have, you know, fund drives and pledges and tell people to give more and, and, you know, God wants us to give. Why don't you have the leadership come up and bring their, you know, offerings up front and, and, you know, then it's a, shows the other people, motivates them to give. I don't want to manipulate you to give. And I'm not saying that churches and ministries should not take offerings or let the people know the needs. But we should never make it the primary goal of how much more we can take in. And if I, as a pastor, come in every week and I start to think, okay, what was the attendance numbers? How much did we take in? My primary focus is wondering, are we on a growth curve or are we on a downhill slide? And what can happen and what does happen in ministries and churches is their decisions then begin to be based on how we can get the numbers up. 
how we can get them higher, how much more income we can get. And usually that will include watering down the Word of God, turning to entertainment or hype or the latest movement or whatever's popular in the church today. I feel sorry for young guys that are getting into the ministry today because there's so much pressure on them. You need to be involved in the latest trend, the latest movement that is out there. That's what you need to base your ministry on rather than just the simple teaching of the Word of God through the Word of God. I want you to simply give as the Lord leads you. Paul would write to the Corinthians. I was reading this in my devotions yesterday. He says, I don't want you to give grudgingly, you Corinthians. I want you to give freely and willingly. And we are to give. And we talk about giving when we get to that section in the Word of God, going through the Scriptures. And we need to give. It's a privilege to give, to invest in the kingdom of God. Amen? I mean, he gave of his son to us. How can we not invest in the kingdom of God? But I also know that some of you that are here, that you feel like that you've been manipulated and you've been had and, and, and you've got a bad taste when it comes to those things and, and giving to a church or a ministry. You feel like you've been taken advantage. And that's what the priests were doing. And buying and selling and making huge profits, that was their primary motive for being there instead of really wanting to help the people. And when profitability becomes the bottom line, when it comes to a church, then the bottom line is this, as I've already said, the work of God begins to stop. And the house of God becomes a house of merchandise, a den of thieves. Because what is exalted is not Jesus, but how much gain and profit we have. You focus more on money rather than ministry. You focus more on the money rather than Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus, he said, as he would say, my father's house, you've made it a den of thieves, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 7, because you're involved in that which is vain and false, that which has a form of religiousness, but it's not the truth. It's not done in God's love. Today, the church, I don't need to tell you this, there's a lot of compromise on God's truth calling evil good and good evil, taking away from the gospel, turning away from the faith, giving to each ears. Paul would warn that in the latter days there are going to be those who are given over to doctrines of demons, that there's going to be those who have a form of godliness but denying his power. There are those of corrupt mind and evil men and impostors that are going to grow worse and worse, Timothy, but you must continue in the scriptures that you've known from childhood. So we know that this trend is happening more in the church and then in the last days that there will be a false church that will be on the scene. We know that, as I make a third point, Jesus calls the temple my father's house. When he quotes from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. I've mentioned this before, but in John chapter 12, that after the triumphal entry, that the Greeks come to see Jesus, and they come to Philip and Andrew, and they said, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus would give an interesting answer to them, and he would say that, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it produces much grain. They were men of science. They were men of philosophy. They didn't have any familiar knowledge of the Old Testament, so Jesus is saying to them as they were coming, the Greeks, that if you really want to see me, you must see me in the light of my death and burial and my resurrection. Now, why were they coming to, to Jerusalem? The Greeks, they believed in many gods. They believed in many deities. But they also believed that greater the temple, greater the God. 
grander the building, grander the God. And the temple, as they remodeled it, was a magnificent building, one of the wonders of the world. One historian said, if you never saw the temple in Jerusalem at that time, you've never seen a building. So they would come, and they wanted to know about the God of Israel. And here they come, and instead of seeing them truly worship the Lord and see that God is good and that he is true and being a light to them, here they are seeing all this selling and buying and ripping the people off and merchandising. And this is no different than what we're used to seeing. Matter of fact, it's even worse. And it was an opportunity for the nations to see that indeed this was God's house. A house where they could truly give worship and praise and prayer to God rather than just religious empty rituals and merchandising and it grieved Jesus. So the application for us is I pray that as people come to this house of God, I mentioned last week Jesus writing a letter to the church of Philadelphia. We mentioned Laodicea. If Jesus was to write us a letter, what did people see when they come into this place? I pray that they come, they wish to see Jesus, and we need to show them Jesus, to speak truth into their life, to, to speak that which is, which is hope and the gospel and minister to them as we minister to them and serve them so they can come here and worship. They can come here and learn of truth. Because people are looking for it. People are looking for it. The world out there is so confusing and it's crazy and they know something's not right. And that they would see that this is a house of prayer. And then lastly, quickly, the fourth thing I want to mention, let's make it personal. We are called the temple of God. Matter of fact, we're living stones being fitted together. But you are the temple of God. So is there anything as we honestly go to the Lord, that the Lord says this needs to be driven out. This needs to be cleansed. You need to get rid of this. Some kind of sin, carnality, an attitude that's not right. He's been dealing with you. And he says it's time to drive it out, get it out, because he loves you. And he wants you to turn away from that, repent from it, and turn to him that you might experience that abundant life that he has for you. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these two short verses that is packed. There's still so much that is here. And, Lord, I do pray. I pray, first of all, if any of us that are here, that, Lord, as we gather in the honesty of our hearts, presenting our hearts to you, is there anything in our lives, in our hearts, that you said needs to go? Unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, is there sin? Is there carnality? A lifestyle? Living in sin? To be driven out because you desire for us to live for you in this newness of life that you have for us. To reckon it to be so. To hand ourselves over to be instruments of righteousness. Lord, we can't do it in our own strength. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray that if anyone is here, that right now you would say, Lord, I hear your voice. I know your word, your, your truth given to me, your command given to me to drive this sin, the carnality, this attitude out. Lord, I pray for those right now that you would help them do that. Because we can act religious, but you see the depths of our hearts and what's there. 
And Lord, we want to get rid of those things that are unlike you, not pleasing to you. And Father, I want to pray for those who are here that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. That a few days after this, he went to the cross to die for your sins. And he rose again to give you a living hope. He is your salvation. There is none other. And he's calling you to himself to turn to him, repent, quit going in the direction you're going, turn to him and give your life to him. Call out to him for forgiveness of sin, to receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. He is your salvation, and you can do that right now. Today is the day of salvation, the scripture says, that you can pray sincerely in your heart that Jesus, I come and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I have sinned, and I believe you died on the cross for me, and that you're alive sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I do thank you for this new beginning and bringing me into the family of God. And I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. For all of us, Lord, this week as we head out of this place, may we be light to others. And may people see the reality of Jesus in us. I pray that you just help us in this heat that's going to be here this week, particularly those who are working outside. And Lord, that you would sustain us. That Lord, may we stay close to the shepherd because there is a lot of wolves that are out there. And Satan, who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Bless everyone here now. In Jesus' name, amen.